Well, good morning. I want to tackle a couple of interpretive difficulties surrounding the chronology of the Passion Week, since it is Passion Week and we're looking forward to celebrating the, uh, the Lord's Resurrection this, uh, this coming Sunday. Again, I'm sitting out on my porch, so you'll probably hear the birds and wind and my neighbor sawing and whatever else is going on. But it's a beautiful day, so I'm sitting outside. So let's begin in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Remember that a few months prior to Palm Sunday, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish ruling council, put a price on Jesus' head. So he's, he's been a fugitive for a couple of months. But as Passover nears, he joins a caravan traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover and stops just short of Jerusalem to stay in the town of Bethany at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he stays there each night from Friday night before Palm Sunday through Wednesday night of the Passion Week. So he arrives Friday. That will, that will actually come up again later. Uh, Sunday is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Monday, he cleanses the temple, kicks the money changers out of the temple. And Monday and Tuesday, he's teaching in the temple. On Tuesday afternoon, Jesus leaves the temple, goes east out of the city, across the Cadron Valley, up onto the Mount of Olives, and that's when he delivers what we call the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Now, in Matthew 26, we read, starting in verse 1, When Jesus had finished all these things, this is Tuesday evening, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. Oh, that, that's what we're going to look at. We'll look at that at a, in another episode. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the, in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now what's strange about that concern of the priests and elders they can't get to Jesus during they can't get to Jesus during the day because he's surrounded by throngs of people who love him, and they can't get to him at night because he's under the protection of Lazarus and the town of Bethany. But the problem they faced was they knew they needed to rid themselves of Jesus fairly quickly. He was developing quite a, a significant following, but they couldn't figure out how to do it before the feast, before Passover, because they feared the crowds who loved Jesus. So they figured they would, ha they would have to do it after Passover was over because they didn't want to cause a riot among the people. And of course, they'd need to do it after the Sabbath. So the problem they faced was that it, it looked like they were going to have to wait until the next week. Well, if you're reading along, thinking about the chronology of what actually happened, you should be thinking, well, that's odd, because in point of fact, they did crucify him on the high feast day, when they, when they were trying not to do it. So what happened there? Well, Matthew attends to that anomaly. So look at, look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of the leper, and uh, there you have the, the very familiar story of a feast held in Jesus' honor in Bethany, at which Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, broke the jar of, of expensive oil and anointed Jesus with it. And we know, we know that from John, but Matthew doesn't give her name. He says in verse 7, A woman came up to him with an, with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. 
And when the disciples saw it, verse 8, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, uh, look at verse 14. Here's the important verse for my point. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. The difficulty of this aspect of the Passion Week is that the chronology seems out of order depending on what, what gospel account you're reading. And difficulties like this are, are what critics love to grab hold of and say, aha, you see, another contradiction in the Bible. It can't be trusted. It's clearly written by fallible men. Which, which first of all, just because something is written by fallible men doesn't actually mean it can't be trusted, right? The, the textbooks we use in school were all written by fallible men, but for some reason we tend to think they're trustworthy. In fact, just because something was written by fallible, fallible men doesn't really even mean that, they are, that there are necessarily any mistakes, right? But of course, the difference is that the Bible wasn't just written by fallible men. It was written by men guided to record the very words that God wanted written. And so that's where the objection comes from. It's to attack that remarkable claim. And really, if you think about it, we, we don't react this way in any other area of research. If some well-established expert, on the one hand, or even just a, a competent, reasonable eyewitness, on the other hand, were to explain something to us, and we happen to not understand quite how it all fits together, in what other context of life do we, do we think, well, this expert seems to be saying things that are difficult for me to understand, therefore the expert's wrong, because it's certainly not me who's made a mistake in my study. But when we come to the Bible, which is the most historically verified and consistent documentation of eyewitness accounts known to man, and on top of that gives prophetic details that could only be known if the information had in fact come from God, we come to the scriptures written by men who were, who were way smarter than us anyway, and written by God who is infinitely more wise and intelligent than we are, and we see something that we can't quite seem to reconcile after five minutes of thinking about it, and our conclusion is, well, I guess the Bible made a mistake, because it's certainly not my limited mind that messed up. Well, in the specific case we're talking about, Matthew and Mark seem on the surface level to give one chronology, and John clearly gives a, a direct linear chronology that's different from what Matthew and Mark appear to give. John gives us a step-by-step -step chronology, so let's look at it in John 12. John 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, which was a, an aromatic oil extracted from a flower. It was extremely expensive. And she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, uh, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John gives this helpful clarification. He said this, verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. 
For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Then in verses 9 through 11, he explains the excitement surrounding both Jesus and Lazarus, and the, the chief priests wanted to kill Lazarus as well because he was leading quite a lot of people to the Lord. And then John 12, 12 begins, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And he tells of the triumphal entry on Sunday. So if this event, this meal in Bethany, clearly happened on Saturday, as John makes explicit, why does Matthew, uh, both Matthew and Mark actually, insert this story from the previous Saturday into their account of Tuesday? Well, Matthew tells us in chapter 26, and Mark in chapter 14, that on Tuesday night, the chief priests and elders were trying to plan how to arrest and kill Jesus, but they didn't know how it was going to work before the Passover feast, so they figured they'd have to wait until after the feast, when most of the people had left Jerusalem and gone back home. Then Matthew and Mark insert the account of Saturday evening in Bethany. Uh, they suspend their narrative to recount when Mary spends expensive oil uh, anointing Jesus because she recognizes that he's going to die. The twelve don't understand and are indignant, and Judas was really leading them in this complaint to Jesus, and so Jesus directly rebukes Judas. Then, Matthew says, Judas went to the chief priests. The, the group that was plotting to kill Jesus. And the word then, in verse 14 of Matthew 26, is referring back to verse three, verses 3 through 5. In other words, Matthew inserts the story of the meal in Bethany to explain in context that that interchange between Judas and Jesus was a tipping point for Judas to further harden his heart and go betray Jesus to the chief priests. But Judas didn't, he didn't actually go to the Sanhedrin until Tuesday evening. And Luke 22 makes it explicit as well that, in fact, it was Tuesday night when the chief priests were plotting how they could arrest and kill Jesus, that Judas actually went to them uh, to plan his betrayal, and the chief priests were delighted. So from, from Saturday through Tuesday, Judas has just been letting his, this rather mild rebuke of Jesus He's been letting it fester, and it doesn't seem like much, and it certainly wasn't the only reason, uh, because the hard teachings of Jesus in the temple on Monday and Tuesday certainly attributed to it as well. But Matthew and Mark are clearly inserting that account in the middle of their Tuesday narrative to draw the connection that that confrontation on Saturday played a role in motivating, Jesus, uh, motivating Judas to finally go to the chief priests to plan how he could turn Jesus over to them. And, of course, as Mark and Luke state, the chief priests were overjoyed when Judas approached them because this was the answer to their dilemma of how they were going to get to Jesus. Now they had a man on the inside. Judas had followed Jesus for three years. He knew his habits. He knew his favorite places to retire to, which is how Judas knew Thursday evening when Jesus wasn't in the upper room where he had left him. Judas knew to check the Garden of Gethsemane. So this was an answer to the chief priests' wildly misguided prayers. So there is no contradiction. John gives the play-by-play, -play, straight chronology, uh, while Matthew and, and Mark are pausing their accounting of the events and giving a parenthetical flashback to Saturday, which is when this meal is held in Jesus' honor. Mary pours the ointment on him, and the confrontation between Judas and Jesus takes place. There's no contradiction, and if we allow the text of Scripture to speak for itself, we continually find there is every reason to trust the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's word. I hope this has been helpful. 
Next time, we're going to look at what day the crucifixion actually happened on. So until then, Godspeed. <laughs>